What I want to do today is sort of cast a bit of a critical eye on where we're at with the Australia-India relationship. Um, as you all know, 2014 was this big year. It was a, you know, regarded widely and rightly as a real watershed moment in Australian-India relations. Um, most symbolically, we had the two, the sort of what, what appeared to be kind of reciprocal prime ministerial visits uh, culminating in a, in a, a clearly very close uh, and positive relationship that uh, emerged between Prime Minister Modi and Prime Minister Abbott. Much was made of the fact, I think too much perhaps, of the fact that Prime Minister Abbott was Modi's first um, visitor as a foreign head of government after his election. Um, I mean, it's just by chance, but there it was. Um, and that we, it, it seems that we have kind of cleared what has always been this hump in Australia-India relations. Um, Meg Gurry, who unfortunately can't be here and is someone who very much represents, I think, the, the partnership of Latrobe and AII. She's a research fellow with both of our um, institutes, or both of our institutions, rather. Um, she's written e what is easily the, um, the definitive statement so far of Australia-India diplomatic relations. And in this book, if you haven't read it, and I, I wouldn't, if you're, this is an area you're interested in, you really must read it, uh, she ch tells a story that's very much a kind of boom-bust story that Australia-India relations, often driven very much by personal relationships at the pointy end of government, go through these periods where we feel like, aha, now we've got this, this potential. It always seems to be there between these Commonwealth, democratic, cricket-loving, you know, you, know you know the story, countries have finally got this chemistry. and We've gotten through whatever the problem was, whether it was the um, very visible clash between Nehru and um, Menzies, whether it's um, then the gap, and then, but we seem to every now and then have these moments that come up and culminate in a peak and then it recedes and the opportunities aren't realised and problems, that the very significant problems and gaps open up. And there's a sense now that perhaps we've, we've cleared the last big hurdle and now we can get on with it um, and that the alignment of interests and all these things have meant that you know, this, this time it's different. Uh, Craig's predecessor, the foundation director of the Institute, Amitabh Mathu, was famous and you probably heard him say it many times that the Australia-India relationship is a relationship whose time has come. Um, and other language you hear is the kind of always ever so slightly worrying kind of language of this time it's different, you know, this time really is different, um, and that we've, we've entered a qualitative new phase um, of this. So what I want to do is really kind of have a good hard look at this and ask whether, we, whether this time is actually different or whether we're once again at a point where the optics look good, the relationships look good, the potential's there, but it doesn't get realised. Um, and as you can probably gather by my subtitle, rather unimaginative subtitle, I must say, uh, I had that, I'm not good at titles. And I had a kind of cog and, and Simona <laughs> going, we need a title, we need a title. I'm like, I know, and I can't come up with good one. Um, so, it, but you, as you can gather, the subtext is, I think, there's, there's plenty to be aware of, and there's plenty to look at, and there's much more that can be done to ensure that this thing, which we, I think, certainly in this room, think is a good thing to be pursuing, uh, can begin to take more substantive steps than we have to so far. So what I want to do is start by saying, talk a little bit about why people are so optimistic. Why do we think this time it's different? Why is this the relationship whose time has come? Uh, then have a look at the challenges and in particular look at the differing, um, have a closer look at these claims that people make about the alignment of interests, the economic complementarities and the connections at the societal level. And then say a few quick things about what can be done. And I, I do want to leave some time for questions and comments. And as those of you who have heard me lecture before know that timeliness and time discipline is not an attribute or strength um, for my lectures. So 
Um, I'll try to keep that brief and keep to time. Um, so let's start with why, why are people saying that this time it's different? Uh, probably the most commonly cited reason that people put forward is that Australia and India are finally kind of in one another's strategic orbit. Or more, put more precisely, that the alignment of the two countries' big strategic interests are now kind of set up. Where in the past, particularly during the Cold War, um, and particularly because of not just our different ideological dispositions during that conflict, but also because of the different ways in which we thought about our security and strategic interests meant that there was no clear fit. You know, the convergence of interests simply wasn't there, the kind of thing that people expect to be the underpinnings of good relations between a major player and a smaller power. If that's going to work, you're going to need to see that you share basic strategic interests. And of course, the big driver of all of this is the big driver of so much in world politics today, and, and that is China. Um, so the thinking goes at any rate that it is China's rise, the extent to which it is destabilizing a prevailing stable regional order in East Asia, the extent to which it's discomforting many in the region, both US allies and countries like India who aren't US allies, but who feel somewhat you know, discombobulated, either because of very obvious reasons, like the disputed borders that India and China still have, but also the notion that you have this very large, very powerful authoritarian communist dictatorship, which has, you know, at last count, 123 countries in the world with whom it, has, it is the number one trading partner. So you feel like this is this power that is very much a kind of thing with which we, are, we, and I do use that term collectively quite deliberately, feel uneasy. And so the China's you know, shift in the strategic order means that now Australia and India can see we have a common, a, a very big, large-scale common point of common concern. Uh, I think a second point, uh, and something Craig mentioned in his opening comments, uh, is India's broader ambitions. India now thinks of itself and its place in the world on a larger regional and global scale in ways that make sense to Australia, or certainly from Canberra's point of view, from a strategic and security point of view, seems to chime with what we see. That's to say the Look East policy that India begins to think is, is what's driving this, um, and in particular the ways in which, for example, India is thinking about the set disputes in the South China Sea as part of its sort of sphere of, in, sphere of interest and the extent to which China's activities there, not just the, um, the very uh, high profile pouring of very large amounts of sand and concrete, but also things like economic interests and exploration, oil and gas, India, Indian companies are significant um, players in the ex exploration activity that's uh, undergoing, uh, that's underway in that part of the world. So set the, the second source of this strategic alignment is, is India's broadening out of its strategic ambition. I mean, I think India has always had this ambition, but it's been turning a broader kind of general sense that we matter in the world to an actually existing policy of trying to shape um, its broader environment. So that's to say India is not just focused on its near abroad and, and the South Asian neighborhood from a security and strategic point of view, but a larger sphere. Um, third point of strategic alignment is the fact that Australia and India share significant um, sort of what you might call smaller scale security interests, most obviously in the sort of non-traditional security sphere. We have interest in the free flow of goods, the free flow of um, the, you know, the open free navigation on the high seas, as well as a whole range of other um, non-traditional security concerns, whether they relate to uh, environmental security, whether they relate to food security, movement of population and the like. But 
on those, not just the big air security geopolitical concerns, but the lower level ones, there seems to be a lot of shared interest. And again, to, to refer back to something that uh, Amitabh Mattu used to say frequently, uh, India and Australia are two countries over which there are no kind of zero-sum points of strategic or security difference. Um, and as, but up to which I would often say to Amitabh, show me, show me, you know, show me countries where there publicly are zero-sum stated differences. And once you get beyond a, you know, the odd, really obvious dispute, it drops away. But, but nonetheless, it's an important point that if you're looking to build diplomatic relationships where there are no obvious trade-offs, where you have to make choices where my gain is your loss, you have a platform on which um, one can build. And, of course, and I think it's no coincidence that both India and Australia have been the most prominent advocates of the, the idea of the Indo-Pacific, that the connections between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, both economic and trade-related, so, so trade and energy-related, uh, but also to do with the broadening out of the strategic conception of the, of the Asia-Pacific to being an Indo-Pacific, I think reflects the ways in which um, our interests are aligned, but also the ways in which our strategic imaginations are, are chiming with one another. So strategic alignment is, is Exhibit A. Um, exhibit B is, of course, the improved long-term improvement in the economic relationship. India is now Australia's fifth-ranked export market um, and tenth in terms of two-way trade. And it has been, you know, if you look at the long-term transformation, that's a, that's a very radical shift from a point not too long ago in which Australia and India traded, you know, barely figured in one, one another's bilateral trade statistics. Um, a third sort of exhibit, Exhibit C, I guess, um, is the fact that politically there is now um, no meaningful difference between the major parties about India. There is a real bipartisanship that is not dissimilar to the way in which there's a real bipartisanship about the attitudes towards Japan and attitudes towards China. Oh, sorry, not China. It's, although there's, that's not, there's not a lot of gaps there, but there's a little bit. But I meant to say the US, which was a rather bad Freudian slip, really, mistaking <laughs> China for the US. But um, most obviously, what was often referred to as the sort of pebble in the shoe, the uranium issue, has gone. So I think what was largely a, a product of the internal squabbles in the Labor Party between Julie Gillard and um, Kevin Rudd, which was Rudd was pro-continuing the ban on selling uranium, and Gillard saw that this was, this was not just a way of marginalising Rudd, but also distinguishing Labor from the Greens. Um, it meant that the uranium issue disappeared. And that now very much, and, and if you look at ministerial visits, not just prime ministerial visits, but defence, trade, education, foreign affairs, both sides of politics are making India a priority. And if you just tick off the numbers of visits and the frequency, it, it's really quite striking. You know, I was looking back and looking at the numbers, and it goes right back, um, you know, really to the almost the very start of um, Prime Minister Rudd's term in office. Although there weren't as many high, at the very pointy end of government, they would often say, you know, the trade minister at the time, Crean, had been there five times. So there, there is a great f clear commitment at the top ends of government on both sides to seeing India as a positive part or, or a real priority of um, what Australia is doing. So as a result, India, you know, when you think about Australia's approach to the region and you think about Australia's place in Asia, Generally, from a you know, person like me, when we're going through how Australia deals with the region, you start with the nature of our bilateral relationships. And you'd sort of, if a journalist came to you or you were giving an undergraduate lecture, you'd give the Australia-US, Australia-Japan, Australia-China. And it's now the case that you have to talk about Australia-India when you're talking in those terms because of this commitment that goes back for at least a decade, I think, on both sides of politics. Um, 
Then on top of that, there is things like the connection, the very clear connection that occurred between uh, Tony Abbott and Prime Minister Modi. Although I think um, at the time we all thought this was really, wow, you know, he's got this hug. You know, he's got the big Modi bear hug. And this was quite something, Tony Abbott getting up close to the 56-inch barrel chest of Prime Minister Modi. Um, I have to say, I think Modi is a bit promiscuous in terms of his hugging now. Everyone gets, everyone gets a hug from uh, Modi. Some, not everyone looks comfortable when they get a, a hug from Modi, it has to be said. Um, but that's, that's by the by. But uh, there was clearly a, person, a very clear personal connection. And I do think, um, and certainly if you talk to senior officials, there does seem to be a shift in attitude at, at that top level in India um, towards Australia. So Australia has gone from being this, notwithstanding the kind of language that that Modi used in this, I think, a time slightly ambiguous language that, that um, Prime Minister Modi used in his speech to Parliament last year um, about Australia being a long way away and over the horizon. I do think Australia isn't over the mental horizon of India anymore. Uh, and that, I think that's certainly as a result of the Modi government. And if for whatever reason we were to flip back to a Congress government, I think things would be a little bit different. Um, and then, of course, last but by no means least, is the fact that there are now over 400,000 um, people living in Australia of Indian heritage that is important not just in a, in a basic sense that it's the third most, Hindi is now the third most spoken language after English and Chinese in, in homes, but from a kind of hard-headed political point of view, you know, if you buy the argument that domestic interest groups ensure that states behave in certain kinds of ways because they're always getting in the ear of government and lobbying government and that you've got um, groups representing these interests, then you're going to ensure that yeah, this provides some um, what you might call kind of stabilizing effects to ensure that the, the ship of state in terms of its Australia-India relationship maintains its course. And then, so I think when you put that on top of the traditional, the standard tropes of Commonwealth cricket, English and democracy, uh, you, you can see why it is that, that the supporters think this, this time it is different, that there is a lot to think. Um, there's a lot of good substantive reasons to think that Australia and India are now about you know well positioned to take this to take the next step as it were in their relationship so that's the that's why we think it's different now now the more sort of critical side of my talk which is what are the challenges to this so what remains to be overcome what are the sort of things that uh, advocates for the relationship need to now turn their attentions to we don't necessarily need to convince government of the importance of going um, I think I don't think it's you know, Prime ministerial visits, prime ministers, ministers, senior officials go to India because they want their frequent flyer miles. They go there because they know it's important. We don't need to tell them it's important, but we need to tell them a whole bunch of other things. So um, what I want to do is here is divide my comments into three sections because I think it's important to disaggregate the relationship um, into different component parts because there is a tendency, particularly for people who do what I do for a living, to focus only on the government. You look only at what the states do, look only at what bureaucracies and politicians do with one another. Um, and that's important. That state-to-state -state stuff does matter, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But I also want to talk about the two other components that I hinted at at the start. So the, the components, of, firstly, is this state-state relationship. The second is the sort of market-to-market -market relationship. What's that like, and what do we need to do to improve that? Because I actually think that's where the, probably the biggest challenges lie. Some of, and some of you in the room will know exactly um, the nature of these, or will be more aware of these challenges than I am. And then the third is the cultural, sort of societal aspect. So what about our societies? Um, what are the, what are the, the gaps or barriers, not gaps, what are the barriers at the societal level? So we think about the relationship as having a state-state, market-market, and societies-to-society 
um, dimensions, I think in each of these you see differing and differing levels of, of challenge that exist. So to begin with the state stuff, I think, as I was saying earlier, the nature of the relationship at the state-state level is very, very good. In fact, it's hard to imagine it, it really hasn't been better uh, in the sense that, you know, for, for the, exactly the sort of reasons I was outlining earlier. And if we do get um, the economic partnership agreement concluded, the, the kind of sort of sort of kind of free trade agreement, uh, then you, you know, there, there are very few, yeah, we will have ticked just about every major box that you could think of. Um, barring, and this is unthinkable, barring some kind of alliance structure or something along those lines. And as I said, I think both sides of politics kind of get India, um, as does the bureaucracy. And, and if you think about the language government officials, both the elected officials, but also senior officials in you know, the, the Navy, the Defence, the Air Force, or, or um, foreign affairs, if you think about the language they use now when talking about India and contrast it to the late 1990s, not that long ago, most obviously think about the reaction to Pokhran II, you know, the, the nuclear test in 1998. I mean, this was, the, the, and th- this was really damaging to the relationship because of the ways in which Australia articulated its dis- dissatisfaction with what India was doing, and in, in which we were kind of way out of line with the kind of language that other critics were using. It was really, you know, it was deeply patronising in many respects. And you, but you also saw things like naval officials saying, we're very uneasy with what it is that India was just trying to do in the Navy in you know, 1996, 97, 1998. And, and some of it's this sort of lingering discont- un- unease in the military and others about this country that had this non-aligned status that was very much kind of seen as part of the Soviet camp, if not literally you know, part of the Warsaw Pact. But I think there was also a sense that Australia's interests and the way we thought about ourselves was really, really different not that long ago. And I think that gap um, has collapsed almost entirely. So that the language, and it's, it's worth digging this out and looking at it and the, the ways in which government officials talk about Certainly, Australian government officials talk about India and in India's activities has changed. I mean, from when I was an undergraduate, it's just it's astonishing how much this has changed. So, what then are the challenges? Um, and again, I want to try and keep this brief so we can get some discussion going uh, in Q and A. But I think probably the first one is a tendency, I think, to significantly overstate just what it is in security terms that Australia and India can actually do with each other. So we say we have shared security interests, and I actually think there's some gaps on that too, but I'll come back to that. Um, uh, Let's say, for example, on free navigation across the Indian Ocean. We think this is an important security interest. What is it we can do together to actually advance that? And barring Australia sort of writing fairly significant checks and buying quite different sorts of military kit and changing the way in which the Defence Force is organised and changing its training and changing a whole range of things, there's actually not a great deal in terms of, you know, beyond ad hoc sorts of activities to do with, say, disaster relief or crisis management that the two can actually do together. Um, We can talk about it, but to take the next steps to say, okay, we're going to do joint patrols in the Indian Ocean. Let's say we're going to do joint patrols about entranceway to the Malacca Straits. There's something, there's a nice shared interest. the, The Australian Defence Force simply cannot do this, not at the moment, or at least not do this without then not being able to do a whole bunch of other things. So that to turn the idea of shared security interests into shared security action, there's a lot more to be done. And I think, you know, there's, when you need, and, and, you know, diplomatically, you do need to move beyond just saying, we share all these things, we think we have a bunch of common interests to say, okay, well, what can we do collaboratively to advance these interests that will then cement cement the relationship and, and promote common aims? That's the step that needs to be taken, and that we're a long, long way from. I think the, uh, one of the long-run problems um, historically between Australia and India was the fact that Australia was 
an ally of the United States, and not just an ally of the United States, but seen very much as a, um, you know, a cat's paw of the United States or a completely subordinate, subservient partner. Uh, and Meg, in her book, has this great anecdote of, I forget um, the Indian minister who would say it, but, but to Sir Arthur Tang, who was then the Australian High Commissioner in India, he would be greeted whenever he met the, the relevant minister saying, ah, Sir Arthur, how are you? What have you done for the Americans today? You know, that sort of <laughs> attitude. Um, and, that, and that was a problem. And it continues to bedevil a lot of third party relationship Australia has in Asia. But I think the sort of marginal utility question is still there. That's to say, I mean, if you're really being really hard headed, if you're sitting in New Delhi and saying, OK, what is it that Australia can do for us diplomatically? What is it that Australia can do that Singapore can't, that America can't, that all these other countries can't do for us? And a bit, the answer is actually not a great deal. Now, there are some things that can be done, particularly at the multilateral level, particularly if you need to get coalitions of countries to push a particular agenda, whether it's you know, climate change or in, other, or in um, trade negotiations, two areas, by the way, in which Australia and India do not see eye to eye. But that's that's um, coming later. Uh, and, you know, and I think notwithstanding Modi's um, and, the, and the very good relationship between Modi and the language that was signaling a, a warming of the relationship, when you think through, well, what can we do together that's, that's going to be useful to India? And I think Australia's got to look at this and recognise that we are a junior partner in this. Yes, we have a bigger GDP per capita, but in almost every other respect, we are a junior partner. Um, and small partner, large power relationships have got to be mitigated by, you know, you get this massive power um, asymmetries, you've got to mitigate them by some utility. And Australia brings utility to its relationship with the US through geography. So what do we provide to the US? We provide the Southern Hemisphere. It's for all of their intel and listening and spy activities. We are a really key part of that. And that, is, that should not be underestimated. In terms of the ways in which Australia thinks, America thinks about the value that Australia brings to the relationship. Third, um, I think you know, I think there are actually some subtle but important differences in the way we think about these shared interests. So again, the one that's very often cited is that we share maritime security interests in the Indian Ocean region. So we would like, um, we both, and at a basic level, yes, we both want freedom of navigation across the Indian Ocean. We want commercial vessels to be able to sail unimpeded and be confident that they can do so. Uh, but if you then say, well, what about freedom of navigation, that's to say not just the end of that, but what about the means to achieve this? Do we have quite the same interest in that over the longer run? And I would suggest we probably don't. That's to say, I'm not convinced, and this will lead on to my next point, I'm not convinced that Australia and India have the same view as to what it means to secure maritime interests and freedom of navigation and like in the Indian Ocean. Um, then. And this is, to me, the really big one viewed when you look at over the next 20 or 30 years. I think the way that, that, that Australia and India have subtly but really importantly different long-term strategic ambitions, or that's to say, not, sorry, ambition's the wrong word, long-term strategic visions of the kind of world in which they want to inhabit. So that Australia wants, certainly under the current government, uh, and I'd see no meaningful shift either with um, Mr. Turnbull in office or whether um, there were to be a shift to the ALP, uh, Australia is deeply, profoundly, existentially invested in the American vision for Asia. And it's a slightly more expanded vision, but we have fundamentally bound ourselves up. And I don't just mean in a narrow kind of alliance relationship, but the kind of region we want in which American military primacy is the preeminent geopolitical feature, in which American geoeconomic might is also the preeminent feature, 
This, I think, viewed out over 20 or 30 years, is not the sort of world India wants to inhabit. Now, it's not to say it's not the sort of world that India's going to get. And I think those two things are, are separate, and we might want to tease that out in the discussion. But, you know, if the strategic fairy godmother dropped out of the sky and said, you know, Narendra Modi and your heirs and successors, you have three wishes, what would they be? First on the list would be a multipolar world order in which we matter a great deal more and America matters a great deal less. And that's a world with which Australia is not particularly well positioned to cope over the longer run. And if we're being honest with ourselves in terms of the Delhi-India, the, the India-Australia relationship, we've got to recognise that the kinds of worlds we want are not necessarily as closely aligned as we think they are. So I want to turn now to the, to the question of markets. Uh, I should put a caveat around this, particularly given what's in the room. This is, this is my forte is more the strategic and the security and less the economic. But nonetheless, I think I'm a little bit conversant in this area. Um, Although the recent strength and recent growth of the relationship is important and should not be underestimated, again, as Craig was alluding to at the outset, uh, there are some significant, I think, shortcomings in the relationship. Probably the most obvious one is that since 2010, merchandise trade between Australia and India has declined by nearly 50% in value. So the growth is long run, but it's a while ago now and it's coming off quite substantially. And it's mostly coming off because of the decline in commodity prices, but not only. Uh, let's look at the Australia-India relationship from India's point of view. So the Australian point of view is India, fifth biggest export market, 10th in two-way trade. Where does Australia count? Australia is the 33rd ranked country for India's exports by value. And Australia is the 17th ranked import source. So if you're sitting in Delhi and your businesses, managing relation, trade relations with countries, Australia is a seriously peripheral figure from Delhi's point of view. Look at investment. An investment, for many people, investment's actually the, the real thing to look at to get at the sophistication of the, relation, the economic relationship. And I'm one of these people who says, when you look at the China-Australia story, yes, it's a high dollar story, but it's a very unsophisticated relationship. We basically sell iron ore to India, oh, sorry, to China. Uh, and we buy cheap manufactured goods from China, and that's pretty much it. The investment story in comparison is very, very small. FDI is very low. And in fact, if you take strategic investment in Australia out of the equation from China, that's to say you look at productive investment in Australia from China, it's actually, that, that gives a commercial return, it's very, very low, although it's changing. Uh, India is the 23rd source of inward investment into Australia worth about $11 billion. It's a long way down the list. In fact, if you look at the standard DFAT headline figures, there's top 10, top 15, gap India. So we've, we recognise that India is important by putting them on the list. So that's an important concession. But the fact you have to do the gap tells you a little bit about what's to happen. And then, of course, India is the 18th ranked country for outbound investment from Australia. And in keeping with general Australian traditions in outbound investment, the overwhelming majority of outbound investment from Australia goes to wealthy countries. Um, it mostly goes to the US, then to New Zealand, then to Western Europe. And it's only beginning to begin, beginning to see growth in outbound investment into, into Asia. So I think that in many respects, the asymmetry of the economic relationship and the fact that it's from a trading point of view, you know, it has been going backwards in some respects is po possibly even a kind of leading edge indicator of where the, uh, of, of the, the potential problems or challenges of an asymmetrical strategic and security relationship. The trade relationship itself has real boom-bust qualities to it, and that's partly because it's dominated by, well, not partly, it's largely because it's dominated by commodities. Um, so the most recent figures, uh, only 
I mean, we talk a lot, particularly in the university caper, about services exports to India and, of course, services imports. You know, we've all been involved, whether wittingly or not, in, in call center interactions with India. Um, but 23rd, only 23% of Australian exports are services. So th over three quarters of what we export to India is commodities. And of that, the overwhelming majority is coal. So 60% of what we, of those merchandise exports is coal worth, most recent figures, 5.1 billion of 8.9 billion. Um, and it's about, it's just, it's about 45% of the total exports. So if you combine services and merchandise. So it's a coal story, that's what it is. Um, our, now, you don't have to be a, a climate change enthusiast who wants to see universities divest themselves of their investment in coal, although there seems to be a very active um, presence on my campus at any rate, um, to think that this is probably not um, something when you're looking at in the future to be building the nature of a rich, robust, multi-dimensional economic relationship on. And certainly if you buy outside of Australian analysis into resources, um, so it was an interesting report out of a, a Bloomberg Resources uh, conference in Shanghai, basically saying, if, if you're an Australian coal exporter and you think India is going to be your saviour as China goes off coal, either because of the slowdown or because of a, a turn to renewables or non-coal sources, you know, think again because of the, what's going on in India is firstly an attempt to diversify from coal and secondly an attempt to indigenise, as they rather unlovely term, sources of coal. So the basic message, I think, is that the economic complementarities of the relationship are not as strong as, as we often think, or certainly as the supporters often claim. Uh, Australian businesses themselves are plainly uneasy about doing business in India, and we know, and many, any of you who've been involved in it kind of know why. Um, if you look at, as, as a sort of proxy measure, World Bank ease of doing business figures are pretty telling. Um, India ranks 130 out of 189 in aggregate figures. Um, that's pretty grim but the specifics are kind of worse. Um, it ranks 183 out of 189 um, in ease of getting a construction permit, and much of what Australia is, would like to do in places like India is construction. Enforcing contracts, that heart of the international rule, sorry, the rule of law system that we like, 178 out of 189. Ease of paying taxes, or it's not ease, sorry, not ease, it's the um, transaction cost of paying taxes, so how long and how expensive it is to pay taxes, 157 out of 189. And ease of starting a business has gone up from 157 to 155 in the world. So, you know, if you're an Australian small, medium-sized enterprise looking to do something in emerging India, sorry, emerging Asia, developing Asia, <laughs> and you're thinking about where you're going to do it, you've got to be pretty courageous in the, in the um, yes minister sense of the term to be thinking about India. <laughs> uh, now, of course, the economic partnership agreement is there. And it is going to make a difference. And I'm not one of these people who certainly um, from a, a university that prides itself on its left-wing traditions um, to chuck rocks at a free trade agreement. I th I'm someone who thinks that any attempt to make trade freer is a good thing. Any attempt to let markets work is a good thing. Uh, but it's only going to help around the margins. Um, where the real opportunities are going to come from, a, just from a narrow instrumental Australian point of view, is major structural domestic economic reform in India, and the EPA is at the margins of that. Um, what Australia must, I mean, if we want to capitalise on this um, economic uh, opportunities of India, we've got to pray, and I'll get to this in a second, work towards the big reforms happening, making India tariffs, big substantial shifts in tariffs, and regulatory reform. Without that, without those shifts and those movements, it's very hard to see any significant change. Now that's, that's the kind of doom and gloomy stuff. And I'm, I'm being deliberately kind of, I'm kind of egging up this side of things to sort of s 
stylize the argument, but I think we often hear a very positive story. I'm trying to sort of leaven that somewhat. Um, where are there opportunities? I mean, I think there is some really obvious areas in which there is economic complementarity in terms of what's the interest in India and what do we have where there's a comparative advantage where it, not just India is interested in these things, but Australia has a sort of cost and quality comparative, comparative point. I think science, technology, and the biggest one, health, broadly construed. But at the moment, for a whole range of reasons, the markets in that are simply not making that one work. Finally, let's get to society and the societal dimensions. Um, it, I mean, I would, must really, really underline the diaspora, we use that term very you know, cautiously, but nonetheless it's there, um, is clearly really, really important. The, the, the sort of Modi visit would not have been the kind of PR success that it was. And it was, I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. I was utterly amazed at how positive that was in, in almost every respect. I mean, you may not like Modi as a political figure, but as, an, as a political exercise in the Modi brand in Australia, it was an unmitigated success. And that event in Sydney, I forget the name of the place where it was held, the, the Orphanzuna, there we go. Um, I, knew, I knew people here would know what it's called. Um, but that was like a love-in. This was astonishing. And, um, and so this, this, is, this is here, this is not going away, and this is a really important part and, um, of, of uh, the story going forward. Um, equally, I think polling, what little polling that exists, so the polling shows that Australians are broadly sympathetic to India's government and to Indian foreign policy. Now, that's partly because the kind of polling that people do generally ask questions about Indian government, about Indian foreign policy, about Indian leaders. They don't ask things like, would you like to go on holiday to India? I mean, there's tourism boards do these sort of things. But the systematic polling, you know, Pew, Lowy and the like, um, most recent Pew figures show 58% of Australians have a positive or very positive view of, of, Indian, of I India understood as the country. Um, in the most recent Lowy poll, they have this odd scale. They have this thermometer that 100 is very 100. Is we a country, yeah, we we feel very warm towards that country, and zero is we feel very cold to that country. Coldest country, uh, according to the Lowy poll, consistently is towards North Korea, and we feel least warm about North Korea, and we feel most warm about New Zealand. Oddly enough, but there you go. Um, India's 56, so over you know over the 50% threshold, we, we're not. And it's sort of, you know, the, the methods are a bit bodgy, but it seems to chime roughly with the, the Pew poll. Um, polling around leaders is very uneven and very fluctuates enormously. According to the poll, the, uh, the Pew polling, Australians are very supportive of, of Modi and the Indian political leadership, whereas the Lowy poll is the opposite. 23% um, of Australians in the Lowy poll approve of Modi. Now, the timing of that, I, I tried to find out exactly when they did it. They certainly did it, the polling happened last year, but I was trying to, I, I assume it probably would have happened before Modi visited because there was a large chunk more, a, a, the, the plurality of the people didn't know, didn't recognise the name, which I can't imagine would have been true after the visit, but I, I couldn't, um, couldn't find that out. I emailed Alex Oliver at Lowy, who runs it, but I think she might be away, she, or, or she doesn't like me, anyway, she didn't reply. Um, but again, those are attitudes towards the state, towards India as a sort of geopolitical imaginary. And it, it is only a limited figure and a, a limited picture. And I think, in, in terms of the bilateral relationship, um, attitudes are clearly pretty fragile. You know, if we think about the reaction to um, 2009 and the Indian student, you know, disaster was. I mean, disaster both in terms of for the for the poor people who were attacked, and then of course I think for the bilateral relationship it was poor. 
Uh, Peter Varghese, now the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, who was then High Commissioner in India and had only been there very briefly, described his you know, genuine shock at not just how febrile a reaction was to what had occurred in Australia, but how big the gap seemed to be between perceptions in India and, uh, and the kind of country that Australia was. And that, that looming picture of the white racist society that's not interested in, in foreigners, doesn't like them, and kills them, you know, speaking crudely, but, you know, the Indian press is not, you know, well, it's a, it's a broad church, I think, as they say. Um, and, you know, and, and Meg details, and, and whenever she speaks in public, says, you know, this, and many of you will know that this is, this is still there very, very strongly in, in India. If you look at, you know, and speaking about just the area that I know well, our students are leery of India. And, and they, our students, you know, as a group, as a whole, if we look at where our students want to go when they study abroad, those who want to study abroad, so that's a self-selecting group from the get-go. Um, apart from apart from and Ian's here, his, the students who study Hindi, it's a very, very, very hard sell to get students interested in India. Um, and you know the, the figures of you know, the exchange figures are extraordinarily low. Um, many country, many universities will have no students going on exchange to India, um, and study tours for many remain the only way of getting students to go. And, that, and it's a good thing, a new Colombo plan is a good thing, and it's a, but, but we've got to be honest with ourselves that if we, if we measure demand, if we say there's a market in this, you know, at the moment it's extraordinarily limited. Um, and of course there is the fact that there are only two universities in Australia that teach Hindi. Uh, and the most recent, and one of them is in Canberra, and one of them is Uranit City Campus. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I don't mean to be critical, but the university that has done more than any other university to invest in, in India, and that's Melbourne Uni, doesn't teach Hindi, and is probably not likely to, and we certainly hope they don't. <laughs> um, but, no, it, uh, being honest, um, no, no, I'm, being, I'm being somewhat facetious, but, but it is telling. You know, and, and in both cases, at ANU and at my university, um, it's, uh, you have to make a strategic case that there's no market for it at all. You have to, you know, say this is an investment in capacity over the longer run, and you know it's an ironclad position. Ian, don't worry, um, but there it is. Um, look at the most recent ARC funding uh, application, and this goes back over a couple of years. Not a single ARC grant was awarded to a research on India as such. Um, there was one discovery project on language, looking at um, linguistic development on the India-Burma borderlands, and two DECRAs. They're the early career research. Um, basically kind of a, a jumped up post, not jumped up, but like a postdoc on steroids. Uh, one was on how plain packaging legislation from Australia could be used in India, and the other was looking at Australia-India environmental links from white settlement to, to federation, so basically history project. That's it. So that's $400 million worth of research from the Australian government that says it prioritises India, and there's not a single India-focused research project. Uh, and Craig's... Um, inaugural lecture, uh, there was an op-ed in The Age in which there was a great line, Australia has much to learn, but to be really blunt, there's not much evidence that in Australia wants to learn about India. And, you know, people who say, what about cricket? What about, you know, literary festivals? The reality is it doesn't work in any meaningful sense, not even the IPL. So, okay, so that's the doom and gloom. Um, so I want to get back to the start. Clearly things have changed. Clearly things are a lot better than they were. And in many respects, much of that, you know, I think the Australia India Institute has to take a considerable chunk of credit for raising the visibility of India as a, as a simple thing that exists and is a priority for Australia. Um, but I think 
if we only look at the sort of headline figures of why we are interested in one another, the shared orbit, the shared interests, the economic, you know, there's a general economic good news story, there's a real risk of complacency and a tendency to not realise how much more has to be done. You know, it's a bit like, um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a hiker and you're climbing mountains and you're climbing a sort of hill or mountain type thing you haven't climbed before, you're not quite sure how far to go and you think, you know, and if you're a bit like me and you're not great on your maps, you think, ah, this is this tough bit, you know, I've crested the tough bit, it's not going to be fine out of the summit, and all of a sudden the fog lifts and you go, oh, crap, <laughs> you know, uh, long, long way to go. And I do think that's where we're at. Yes, there's been real heavy lifting. Yes, there's been success. Yes, we've made, we're at an altitude we haven't been at before, but boy, there's a long, long way to go before the relationship between Australia and India looks anything like the relationship between Australia and Japan, um, because I don't think the relationship between Australia and China is the right one to look at for our two countries, because it's a very odd relationship. In fact, it's a very instrumental relationship that's very uneasy, and I think not the way to go. Um, it's we should be looking much more towards the multifaceted, multi-layered, and demand-led relationships that exist between Australia and India, Australia and the US, Australia and Japan, rather than Australia and China. So what can be done? And I want to keep this really, really brief because I do, do want to get some discussion going. Um, as you'll probably gather, I'm someone who thinks the relationship is going to thrive, not just where interests converge, but where markets can operate and where people want to engage. And I think to some degree, there's only, we have to realise there's only so much that states can do. Australia is a very statist country. We tend to think the state can fix lots of things, almost everything. Um, and the reality is that's actually not true. Or at least there are very real limits. States have very crude powers. There's only so far that they can go. We can get rid of the tariff barriers. But if the markets aren't complementary, if the economic return, the commercial return isn't there, markets aren't going to flourish. Um, and I do think that we have gotten to the point where I think the state has done a lot. Yeah, there's more to go. We can, as many of us will know, getting visas for each country, whether you're in Delhi coming here, whether you're in here going to, they, it's a pain, that, all of these sorts of things. I'm not sure Monica's here, but you know, she hears this a lot. Um, but that's just around the margins. Um, I think, you know, the... the and so I think that what, what can be done is, a, and the way to think about it is to sort of begin to think about what kind of sort of social infrastructure can be put in place to take the relationship forward so that we move away, so that we don't have another one of these boom-bust periods. Because I think part of the reason with that boom-bust nature of the bilateral relationship was it was purely political. It was about saying, aha, the two PMs get it, they get along, they've cleared away the mess. Oh, we've got uranium off the table. So it's all okay. Now, the politics is fine. Everything else is going to happen. And clearly, that's just not the case. If we're people who think the relationship matters, we might want to, and that's actually something which we might want to explore, which is, does the relationship matter? And should it matter? And why do we think it matters? And we're in a, we're a kind of self-selecting group. So we're probably, by the fact that we're here, we're people who probably think this is an important relationship. Um, and it's good to sort of think through, why is it that we would, you know, tell a skeptic, you know, tell someone, in the Department of Defence, why they should rearrange the defence structure, the structure of the Australian Defence Force, so that Australia and India can work more together. And they say, why? What's what? What would we get out of it? What's beneficial from all of this? And I think I've got some answers to that. But my, my, I just want to say a few quick things, and we can come back to that. Um, so I think this sort of social infrastructure. I kind of think of it as what we need to be think, thinking a little bit about is a kind of social Keynesianism in terms of the Australia-India relationship. That's to say, we kind of need to prime the pump of demand of ideas, of knowledge and experience. Because I think that's where the, that's where the, in many respects, where the gaps are. Um, we need to have sort of mechanisms in place that aren't state, in fact. I mean, they may have state components to them, but in which the participants from society, the participants from the marketplace 
are able to get together and to learn and to see opportunities and to begin to think in that long, I mean, and it's going to be a long game. You know, to, to, and you often hear representatives from you know, Indian business, Indian government say, why don't Australian firms think about things the way the Japanese do, think in 20 year time horizons? And maybe we should, but it's not gonna happen. But if you want Australian business to invest in India, if we want Indian business to invest in Australia, then that kind of educational experiential interest kind of demand pump priming needs to happen. Now, we're beginning to see some of these things occur. I mean, I think the Australia-India Leadership Dialogue is a first good step in this direction, where you know, you've got not just government getting together, you're getting business elites to sit there and sort of see the challenges you've got and begin to recognize what, what these problems are and begin to see where the shared interests happen. But it's small and we need to broaden that out and we need to take it down a few layers as well and begin to think about ways in which we can get the kind of mid-level people in firms, the mid-level people in universities, the mid-level people in the business sector, the, the small businesses, the, the small and medium enterprises that are the guts of um, Australia's outward investment into Asia at the moment, or sorry, are going to be the future of Australia's investment in Asia. We need to think about ways in which that can occur. Another thing that Australia can do, and I, but, but I think this is going to be really hard in terms of how you manage the, the optics of it, um, is you know, Australia and, and I think, it, I mean, more importantly, actually, India has an enormous amount staked on the economic reform program that Modi is, has, has lined up and um, I believe is trying to implement. Um, Australia and others, I think, somehow can, ha I mean, they can help in terms of capacity, they can help in support, they can help in providing resources but of course managing all of that is really difficult in a post-colonial society like India in which the politics of getting external help and economic reforms is, is challenging to say the least but it's another it's it's um, something that's there and I think the other thing is to think about the relationship if we're thinking about these sort of social stabilizers or or whatever you want to call them um, is to begin to recognize that the kind of knowledge transfer game and this I think is what lay behind uh, what Craig was talking about in his inaugural address is not just a one-way street where the, the rich white developed country goes to India and says here's how you can reform your economy but it's to, to look at the ways in which Australia can learn from what India is doing whether it's about water use whether it's about urbanization whether it's about um, multicultural societies diversity big complex diverse society I mean there isn't a bigger more complex more diverse society on the planet than India and notwithstanding, you know, big, you know, not, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, but it's democracy functions. Uh, and to begin to sort of really draw those out, that this, is a, that this exchange and this knowledge transfer is going to be two-way, in which we both benefit from these things. And to use a phrase, you know, that, that the Chinese Communist Party likes, is the sort of win-win nature of this interaction. I think the final thing, given where time is at, I'll stop on this, but there's a few other things I want to say, but um, is to recognise and respect the differences that exist. Um, and then I think the prospects of, you know, the kind of relationship that Australia and India are going to have is one, you know, there's a bit of a teleological assumption that the relationship is, is going to have to, it's going to go down a particular path and if it's not going down that way, it's going to be a mess. Um, and then if we're not constantly making progress, then it's a disaster. Um, and I, I may have been, you know, I'm kind of slightly guilty of pushing that line here, but I think we need to be you know, sort of manage the politics of expectation on both sides in terms of promoting this relationship. Because it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. And I think the, for precisely the reasons I've been saying, the alignment of interests, the capacities, the markets, the society, this is, you know, they're not just going to all of a sudden, we're not going to wake up one morning and everyone goes, aha, I'm all going to, we're all going to enroll in, we're all going to be speaking Hindi, India, you know, we'll be hiring 10 Hindi lecturers next year. That's just simply not going to occur. 
and we need to, but we need to ensure that just because that doesn't happen doesn't mean the whole thing's fallen over. And I think that's, there's a tendency to sort of go, it's all in crisis or it's all fantastic. And the reality is it's, go, it's going to be a slow business and it's going to be complex and it's going to be difficult. But I think, as we all in the room know, um, we think it's a, it's a journey worth taking whose destination, we're not sure exactly what it will look like, will be um, absolutely worth the effort. Well, I'll stop there and hopefully um, have some comments or questions.